this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. My next guest, Matt Darby, found himself in an interesting situation. He was in a classic service business where essentially they were selling time, time and materials. He was in a custom development shop. He owned a custom development shop where they did custom computer code for clients who needed software to be built. And he was burned out, right? He reached the point where he had eight or nine staff and was tired. I was tired of the grind, tired of always finding the next client, tired of trying to recruit and keep happy all the people that he he was hiring to do the work. Eventually, he got to a point where he really just wanted out. And as he'll tell you on the episode, partnered with a company that needed a development team. Now, this exit was one in which Matt exchanged some equity in his company in return for some equity in his acquiring company. Some cash changed hands as well. But for most of the acquisition, it was actually exchange of equity. Now, you may be saying, that's not what I want for my exit. In fact, I want to maximize every last dollar. But as you'll hear Matt's story, his acquisition was quite simple, was quite easy for him to work through and allowed him to quickly alleviate the stress he was feeling from running his company. Here to tell you the rest of Matt's story is Matt himself. Here's Matt Darby. Matt Darby, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me about this business. You guys had a company called Matched Pattern. What, what on earth did you do? That's right. Match pattern. Uh, let's see. Well, um, I was working at Rackspace.com. Um, I was there. I was happy. It was a you know uh, interesting time. Met a lot of good people. Um, that started to slide a little bit, and so I always had this uh, idea in the back of my head of jumping out and starting a software consultancy. Um, I kind of grew up with them here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you know, meet a lot of great people, a lot of interesting projects. Uh, you know. It's, it's a great way to network. So with that in the back of my mind, um, I started Match Pattern. I literally quit my job uh, on a Wednesday around 11 a.m. Uh, when I had to interview for my fifth boss in six months. I was just like, I'm not really interested in this. Like, no harm. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to go this direction. So, so, so when you say custom software, what do you mean by that? Uh, basically any type of software that's not off the shelf, i.e. like Microsoft Word or, you know, Google Chrome web browser. Uh, custom software is basically anything technological that humans typically do and we can automate through computer code. Um, 
things like sending emails or calculating invoices, all that kind of great stuff. That's just repetitious. And we basically codify it and make it automatic. <laughs> and so who was the typical client for you guys? Typical clients were all over the place. We had some pretty large enterprise customers. Um, I'm still not allowed to name them, unfortunately, because of contracts. Um, we also had one of the world's largest suppliers of code hosting. Uh, so we did some work for them. Uh, and then we also did a whole bunch of startup work. So startups are, you know, smaller businesses. They're just trying to get off the ground. They have an idea. Um, they have a little bit of funding, hopefully. And usually they're looking for people, developers to help them bring this idea you know, to implement it, to make it work. Um, so I see there's a lot of startups in Columbus, Ohio, and there's a lot of need. Um, our developers, we have a lot of great developers here, but it's a finite pool. Uh, we're, you know, we're one town um, and we are dealing with brain drain, not the San Francisco, Chicago, New York, all that kind of stuff. So um, we kept it here and we're trying to find devs and we're trying to line them up basically with the right companies um, to quickly get uh, at least an MVP. Um, it's basically a minimum viable product as we call it. So it's not your application or, you know, your program doesn't have all the bells and whistles necessarily, but it gives you a nice starting kind of base that you can go then and take to investors and say, look, this is a proof of concept. This is how I think it's going to work. We have, you know, some of the important bits lined up and typically then you'd ask for, another round of funding to help implement, you know, if you impress the investors. How are your accounts receivable in this business? Uh, cash. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was all time and materials. So um, the hard part with the consultancy is that you don't typically have investors. So startups do because there's an investment, there's a growth there with consultancies, uh, especially in programming. You, there isn't a lot of that. You work up front, you wait 30, 60, 90 days for payment. Um, and it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, again, there's no investors, there's no, um, there's no bank account that we're, you know, burning down essentially. Um, so all of our ARs were all time materials, um, pay us please. And that all went into payroll. <laughs> I guess my question was more, did you get stiffed a lot? Oh, did I get stiffed a lot? Um, no, there was no, no stiffing, but there was certainly some conversations and a lot of chasing. Mm -hmm. um, typically when the money went up, um, the communication when the bill came went down. So especially if you're dealing with larger companies, they move a lot slower. Um, and what is a lot of money in your mind for your company is nothing to them. So they don't, you don't have their attention. So a lot of times you got to call, you got to, you know, send some interesting letters, <laughs> you know, I mean, try to get stuff uh, paid on time. So, yeah. What would a typical project be in terms of revenue? How much are we talking? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Uh, revenue would probably be on a typical project, hundreds of thousands. Okay. Um, so fairly good yeah. size pro projects. Got it. Right, right. And, and, and what made you guys unique? Um, why, would, why would people choose you guys over somebody else? I'm sure there are a lot of custom development. Yeah. There's tons. There's a, there's a sea of them. Um, the only way that you'll get known in consultancy and get uh, jobs is by having a reputation. Um, that's it. It's all sales. And um, if you don't have the network, they're all cold calls. So part of what we brought match pattern um, in Columbus, I ran a thing called the Columbus Ruby Brigade for about 10 years. So we would run monthly user groups free. Uh, we would have corporate sponsorships. For user groups of what? 
user groups that are basically just uh, it's like a loose band of uh, nerds, <laughs> if there's, a, if there's you know, more appropriate word. Uh, we get together every month and we give talks and we learn and teach each other about the latest things, you know, network, talk back and forth. So after doing that for 10 years, um, I had a really good network. A lot of good friends, a lot of corporate people that I knew. And I basically just used that uh, as leverage to kind of get my foot in the door into a lot of these places. Hmm. Um, so it, it gets your foot in the door, having the reputation, but uh, it doesn't actually sign the contracts. So there's a, you know, a lot of negotiation, a lot of um, proving yourself and you know, answering the right questions. And you guys had a, a bit of a specialization in, in programming on something called Ruby on Rails. Is that right? Close. <laughs> we, we actually went to a language called Elixir. Okay. Elixir is basically Ruby's uh, big brother. Let's, let's say it that way. So Elixir's quick history, they were, um, it was created back in the 70s. And it was actually a, a language called Erlang. And that ran all the telephone switches in like Finland and Sweden, I believe. Hmm. So it could not go down because your, your national phone network would go down. So uh, a bunch of programmers that built Ruby and Ruby on Rails, uh, Ruby got a little bit more mature. And so they built out a lot of the tools and they were getting bored. So a lot of these people took the lessons they learned in Ruby and went and wrote Elixir. So the benefit is that Elixir, basically all of the stuff that you have to worry about uh, environment-wise, let's say, with, uh, with Ruby is reduced probably at least in half with Elixir. Um, and Elixir's throughput is massive compared to Ruby. It is fast, fast, fast. Um, Ruby's really great. It's fun to write. It, uh, it writes like English. It, it really does. When you write it right, you can almost read it like prose. Um, the trade-off with that is that it takes longer for the computer essentially to run it. Mm. Elixir so Elixir was nice. faster, more stable, and 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 did your customers know the difference between like like sometimes you hire a plumber and there one guy's using a Stanley three inch whatever and another guy's using a DeWalt three or whatever, and like you don't need to know just fix my toilet buddy like, right 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 were your customers in that camp where they're like I don't care if you use Elixir or cement mixer just write me some code so I can pitch my right. Uh, if we had greenfield projects, yes, we would definitely pitch Elixir because it's. Oh, but did they care about Elixir? I guess is my question. Did they, they did not? No, okay. No, they absolutely did not care. Uh, almost everybody had existing frameworks, languages in place, and we were brought in to adopt, fix, and uh, improve, essentially. So uh, it was a lot of, um, I don't want to say rescues, like rescue projects, but a lot mm -hmm. of things are on fire, please come in and help us out. <laughs> so how, so this was a time and materials business. And I guess a lot of people listening may be able to identify a little bit, Matt, because you know, while they may not be in software, they might be in a service business. They might be in an advertising agency, graphic design studio, an architectural practice where, you know, you're sort of selling time essentially in materials. Absolutely. You, you wrote a, a blog post, uh, which sort of caught our attention here. All hunger no thirst. Can you explain that for folks and tell people where they can find it if they're interested? Sure. It's on Medium. If you just search for, you know, Matt Darby on Medium, it should come up top. Uh, All Hunger, No Thirst that actually is a lyric from a band called Doomtree that I referenced many, multiple times in that blog post. Hmm. Uh, it was just something that struck me. Um, and it's had different meanings for me uh, over, over these last, you know, 18 months, last two years, basically. Um, what it means to me is that a lot of people 
see like the, the glittery side and they want the title and they want the end result, but they don't necessarily see what it takes to get there mm. and what it takes to maintain that. Um, so thirst, you know what I mean? Is like, they want, they want it, but hunger is that you got to earn it. You have to essentially eat that responsibility, process it, and then you grow and then you get the title and you understand a bit more. Um, it's an inter- interesting thing, but yeah, so that's what, you, what it means to me. When you started Match Pattern, were you hungry or thirsty? <laughs> that's an excellent question. Uh, I was thirsty, and then I kind of got to see behind the curtain, um, and then I, I got the hunger. It was like, okay, it's time to do this. I have to do this. I don't know where it'll end up. Um, all I know is that I'm standing on a pier, and there's a big lake in front of me and something is telling me to swim. <laughs> were you financially strapped? Like, were you in a point where you kind of had to make rent or mortgage payments or whatever that you didn't have like forever to kind of sit on the pier? You, you sort of needed to start earning some money. Is that fair to say? Or We had a little bit of money. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a computer programmer over the last 20 years. So, I mean, it pays well, uh, mm-hmm. but I certainly wasn't sitting on millions. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, how it was funded was, uh, my home equity loan and, uh, just hacking with clients, getting something moving. And how big did you get, uh, the business before you decided to sell? What was, how big in terms of size, number of employees or whatever proxy sure. you want to use for that? We had, uh, nine folks, nine full-time people, um, eight of which were developers, including myself, uh, and my wife, Melissa, as, uh, the executive assistant. Great. Uh, yeah, we ran everything out of our house. We were all remote, so we didn't have a centralized office. Uh, developers are pretty neat in that way. We, we kind of keep weird hours and, you know, paying for an office with one person in, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So. What, what did that do for your culture as an organization? There's so much focus these days about, you know, uh, inspiring culture and empowering culture and you know, blah, blah, blah. But how did, how, did, how did you think about culture all being remotely? Uh, <laughs> the, the actual answer is, is we were in such get it done mode that we didn't care about culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, um, a known playing with fire kind of thing. Um, there wasn't a lot of time for niceties. It was more, you know, hit the ground running, please go. We got to get this stuff done. Um, culture is incredibly important. Um, but we failed on it. Uh, we did. It was just get stuff done all throughput. Um, not a lot of relaxation, not a lot of, um, camaraderie. Honestly. Why do you say you failed on it? Because it worked for you. I mean, you, it worked, it could have been better. Um, that that's probably the best thing. Um, I didn't have enough time to, um, grow it. And it's such an important thing, especially as you grow and you, the culture is not something that you can add on afterwards. Um, at least not easily. Right. Because then you have people that came into a company and they're thinking one thing and then your corporate culture shifts and then they're kind of left out in the wind. Uh, Especially with developers, they're they're a very intelligent bunch um, and they're in critical demand. So um, treating your developers right is absolute key to running any type of tech organization. Um, And that's why I said I I failed on it. I didn't lose anybody, but um, if it was better, I probably could have grown faster. And, um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's helpful. What, what was the trigger that made you decide to sell mash pattern? The trigger that made me set out with it? No, the trigger that made you think now's the time to sell. Ah, uh, 
Ah, sorry. Um, it was um, it was truly a personal decision um, for me. It wasn't really based on numbers. It was based on that I was running the company by myself. Um, I was the salesman. I was the owner. Um, I had no other partners. I had no investors, uh, anything like that. And um, and doing sales is really difficult. Uh, it's you know it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, and when other things are dragging you down. Um, you know, trying to do work and, you know, accomplish all the things that you set out to, your energy level goes down. Um, so uh, Nick Potts, our CEO over here at ScriptDrop, uh, I, I chased him for some client work for a while, you know. Um, what, sorry, and, what does ScriptDrop do? What, what are they? Sure. ScriptDrop is the company that purchased Match Pattern. We do prescription medicine delivery uh, nationwide or America nationwide. Uh, so we're in all 50 states. We have a whole bunch of strategic partners, couriers, uh, and pharmacies, pharmacy grocery chains. So basically, you go to you know your doctor, you get a prescription. Um, they ask what pharmacy you would like it to go to. You, you, know, you can say whatever your pharmacy, or you can have ScriptDrop deliver it to you. So basically, we parcel out the needs based on, do you need it right now? Do you need it within an hour? Can we schedule it? Do you need it next day? And we're also moving into durable medical goods too. So things like hospital beds, wheelchairs, There's, we have an aging community and um, anything we can do to help them take their medicine regularly and help them, you know, um, it works and it's an altruistic mission. So that's partially why I sold too. So, so you were uh, pitching them for some work, meaning they had custom development you know, projects and you thought, Hey, maybe I can, Exactly. Right. So we all knew each other from the community and um, I chased Nick, our CEO over here. And, um, you know, he was concerned about investors and as any startup would be. And, uh, you know, uh, a, co a consultancy for, with developers is not cheap. I mean, it's pretty expensive. So he was worried about that appearing on his bottom line when he was going to investors. It's like, I, I understand that for sure. But what we did do was we understood that we had uh, the shared love of Elixir. And so based on my history with the Columbus Ruby Brigade, we started up a new user group for Elixir here in Columbus. And we ran that together every month for, I don't know, eight months. Nick doesn't sound like a software guy though. He sounds like a more of a business and entrepreneur. Like a, he doesn't sound like a in the weed software guy, but but he knows a little bit of software. He, okay. he, he says he knows enough to be dangerous and to stay away from it. <laughs> okay. So yeah, he's, he's definitely more on the business end right now, the wheeling and dealing and, and the, all the phone calls. Um, but yeah, so, it, you know, the networking opportunities with the Elixir group, we ended up working together, um, just talking a lot. And we realized that our goals were shared, um, like the big things, like, what do you want to do? You know, if we make it that kind of stuff. And, um, I needed to sell. I need, I had a developers that I needed to sell hours for, and he had custom software that he needed to be written. So he just approached me one night and he was like, can we buy you? And I went, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> it, it was, it was honestly that it was a, probably a five minute conversation, a handshake and you know, here we go. So. Fantastic. I want to, I want to, I want to dig in a little bit more there. So so Nick is the, the guy who runs ScriptDrop. How big was ScriptDrop where you were both volunteering for the Elixir user group together? Like, are we talking hundreds of employees, dozens? What, what's the size? Right, in, right at that point, I believe they had about 12. 
12 right employees. There, 10 to 12, right. Yeah, they were at a co-working space here in Columbus. Okay. Um, you know, they provided, you know, a big conference room. And, you know, based on our network, we invited a whole bunch of people in and it's been running every month. So trying, you know, try to train people up, give them a safe space to talk about dev stuff, you know, that's not management and, you know, no one wants to look stupid. Yeah. So yeah. At these yeah. user groups, we can ask all the, all the good questions. <laughs> so script drop in terms of at least headcount was, was sort of similar in size uh, as you guys, N- not right. totally similar, but in a completely different industry. Um, had you, had you gotten like when you were starting to feel a little bit heavy and burnt out and, and like, maybe I want to sell, had you gotten a sense of what, your company would be worth like in terms of either a kind of a multiple of revenue or, or some other sort of proxy for value. What, what do you think it was worth? I think it would, um, I thought it was basically worth about a year of our payroll essentially. Okay. Uh, we never really had profits. That's the trouble, trouble with a young consultancy. Any profits goes right back in the payroll. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't really show, you know, profits or, you know, five years from now based on this growth, we would be there. With a developer consultancy, the more um, the more projects you sell, the more people you need to staff. And so, as that staffing goes up, your profits are eaten up in order to make profit on the next project. Mm-hmm. But if that project goes away, then you have people on the bench um, that aren't billable and still need to be paid. So, things like vacations, PTO, anything like that, it's actually a double dip um, to the company. And that's usually not a big thing, if you know, or at least it's like kind of hidden when it's a larger company. But when it's you know, just a handful of people, it's, it, it's a, takes a lot of effect. So, so you figured you guys were worth roughly one times payroll, right? Got it. And, and so you start this conversation, you're, you're into the, into the, uh, the, the user group with Nick, he says out of the gate, do you remember what triggered him to say, can we buy you was, I mean, it seems like kind of an odd thing to just come out with. What, what was the, what were you guys discussing when he, I was probably lamenting how uh, lamenting on the issues and the difficulties that I was having as, as running something. Um, it wasn't that it was uh, over with or ending or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's a very difficult road to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. especially when you're solo with no backing. You're, I mean, one single phone call can ruin you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's takes a lot. So I was probably lamenting that to Nick and he was probably doing the same about needing, he, he found such a great avenue for growth for this business that he really needed a, a built team to come on in with all the you know camaraderie and knowing each other and all that kind of stuff. Just kind of come in, hit the ground running. Um, and a lot of our people were pretty pretty senior developers, a lot of years underneath their belts. So that was part of the attractiveness as well. They had somewhat more junior people. We would come in, help them, help grow the entire company. By the way, if you guys were so senior, why hadn't they left for New York or San Francisco for kind of greener pastures, so to speak? Friendships. Hmm. I, I honest to God have to say friendships. And again, not to keep hitting this user group thing, but that's where this all comes, comes from. Hmm. Uh, one of my right-hand men at uh, Match Pattern, who is now our, our VP of architecture here at ScriptDrop, uh, he was in Chicago running Dev Bootcamp, which was a coding bootcamp, very, very, very popular. Uh, and he was essentially the lead engineer. He ended up coming back home to Columbus because it wasn't home and he missed people. So we do have a lot of brain drain, but oddly enough, there's like a, a trickle back. They go out there and they, um, 
kind of get disenchanted with, you know, so, housing and all that stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Someone told me that, that software development, I mean, I'm not a developer, so I know nothing about this stuff, but someone told me that, that software development is a team sport and that developers are, are really crave that interaction with other peers. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause you think you have the kind of stereotype of the developer is the kind of like rain man, you know, right. Propeller right. head guy who never talks to anybody Don't right. that, like Stewie over there. He's doing some right. cool stuff, but it's not true. Right there. That's, that's the old stereotype. Right. Uh, it was def it was definitely true, but yes, it's way more of a team sport. Now um, the industry has grown and all the tooling has grown so much that no one can keep even a 10th of it in their head. Interesting. So everyone's got a piece of the pie and you got to work together. You got to talk. And that was part of the issue with match pattern being remote we didn't have those little kind of hallway conversations, the mm -hmm. water cooler and they're not all just gossip. When devs talk, they tend to talk technical things and they'll speak, you know, start speaking on a topic and someone else will go, Oh, I need that. Awesome. Thank you. And then they'll run over there and it opens up whole new avenues for them. Uh, okay. So back to the story, you're lamenting with Nick and saying this, this whole time and materials thing is tough. And, right. and he's like, well, we got to, talking about the tail here. We need developers. And he says, can we buy you? Then what happens? Uh, we shook a hand. <laughs> gave a you hug. haven't even talked price no. yet. How did you yeah, guys figure right. out the, the price for the business? We, Nick and I literally sat down in an empty office. He gave me an offer. I negotiate, you know, changed it up, redlined it once. And he went, okay, cool. And then we got to an entire overview of the company. Um, and we honestly started, I started ramping down projects right then. So uh, we, Nick came up with the first offer. Right. And uh, what was he basing that on? Do you know? I think it was just, honestly, I don't know. I didn't give him any of our numbers, anything. He just kind of came to me with a price and I went, yeah, that looks good. Cause I mean, I know how, what I would have to do in order to recoup or to make that money. Right. 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 And what were the red lines and red lines being kind of legal lingo for kind of changes to a contract? What changes right. did you request? We, uh, largest, uh, our biggest thing was, um, handling how the ac actual acquisition was framed from a legal, uh, and, you know, financial standpoint. So it was just between Nick and I handshake. Good. Let's go do it. Let's get it done. Uh, but of course you, you know, it's an acquisition. So we have to get the lawyers involved and mm -hmm. that went over about, two and a half, three months of, of back and forth, just updating contracts, like the, the actual variables, like the price point never changed, but it's like, how, how are we lining this up? Uh, how, how is payment going to happen? Whole bunch of legal kind of things. Um, so that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, so having a great lawyer in your corner is absolutely, I mean, it's worth every single penny you'll ever spend on. Them. <laughs> so you guys agreed on a price. Did you also agree on, on the, the payment, uh, dates, like when you'd receive your money? Yes, exactly. So I can't say how, what the amount was, but basically I got a half up front and a half uh, six months later. So um, out of the first payment, I had to take care of a whole bunch of business loans. So <laughs> even though it looked like profit and you know the check felt good, a lot of it went to paying back our company debt. Um, you know, which is nice paying that off and, you know, getting, getting out of, uh, you know, the loan thing, but sure. yeah. Yeah. And then the second half is in the future. Yes, exactly. Yep. And is I'm that contingent on you 
achieving certain goals or is it just a date or what time based or it was it was a date and there was certain goals mainly around team building um mm. so that's my specialty outside of being a dev and a former professor and all this other stuff um i have i, I know the devs i know who's good i um and when you're hiring developers, there's not only just can you do the job, um, there's salary, there's fit, there's position, there's title, there's timing, all this stuff in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so basically, my goal was to build out the team. Um, so we took it from 12 people initially, plus our nine, which is 21. Now we're up to 62, all told, across the company. Wow. And I believe 40 of them are developers. Really? So and, and is that's Nick six months. Yeah. Has Nick attracted uh, outside capital for the business? Has he, has he got investors? Into yes, we have investors. We just closed a really small kind of informal uh, round uh, basically last week. So a lot of uh, interest, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of good things. And did you get a piece of uh, script drop as part of your deal? Like, do you have some shares that that, so you're yes. invested too? Okay. Yes, yes. So basically the breakdown for the payment, I believe it was basically one to five in terms of cash to equity. So for every dollar of cash you got, you got five dollars, quote unquote. Right, of right. Equity. Exactly. And, that was, and that was based on Script Drop's most recent valuation or how did, how did you value those five dollars? Their most recent valuation, yep. So um, even before I started, they were getting buyout offers. So, you know, it helps to put a valuation on the company pretty quickly when someone mm -hmm. comes to you with a, you know, with a negotiation. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's what they think we're worth. That's what they think we're worth. So let's split it in the middle. That's our valuation for right now. And, yeah. and, and so this took place, was it seven or eight months ago now, I'm guessing-ish? Yes, it was seven, seven months ago. Yeah, we, okay. uh, we all moved in together December 1st. Got it. Got it. As time has sort of gone on and you've, you've gotten a chance to sort of get into your new environment, what sorts of reflections do you have about your decision today? Do you, do you sort of reflect on it and think that? Sure. I don't regret it in any respect. <laughs> respect. Um, entrepreneurship's fantastic if you have the stomach. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's a brutal business. It's, it's really, um, people don't care. There's not a lot of friendliness. It's again, time and materials and time is money and all that kind of stuff. So, but reflecting back, I'm, I'm absolutely happy that I made the decision. I'm, uh, it's been life changing. So again, just, you know, going from basically running it all to helping run it all, um, just by removing the sales aspect from me that dropped my stress level probably 40% right there because we have investors, we have money and we, by extension, we have time to make decisions um, and implement those decisions. So it's much more relaxed um, and more sure, basically, right? We know where we're going. It's not just keep the client happy. And some people might look at your old life being totally independent, master of your own universe, flexible, decide when to work, where to work, where, with a sense of envy, right? And to some extent, when you were with Rackspace, you did look upon entrepreneurs and think, oh, I'd love to do that. Yes. Yes, I did. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like peeking behind the curtain. Um, I mean, as a developer with a lot of years and a little bit of management, I mean, you understand certain things, but when you're the one holding the contract, and it's your name on the line. It's your house on the line. Um, 
that that's tough. That is extremely tough. And um, I, I give kudos to anybody that can do it happily over time. It, it's, it's brutal. Um, I, I did not know. And I have a uh, great, a lot more respect <laughs> basically <laughs> for the people that are out there doing it and doing so, it right. So every employee should have a business under their belt before becoming employees as you were telling me. Oh boy, I wish. <laughs> oh boy, I wish. Uh, you know, a lot of developers, they, they come right out of college or right out of uh, these, you know, uh, boot camp schools and they're great and they're wonderful, but a lot of them don't necessarily have, um, I hate to say real world jobs. Um, places like where you have a time clock, Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of them don't have that experience. And again, the dev culture is, is very rich. You're allowed to do pretty much whatever you want. So you have to facilitate that, but with the most minimal amount of money, Mm. (laughs) you know, and like the least amount of time away. How did selling your business impact your relationship with your wife? That was good. Uh, my wife worked with me. She was the executive uh, administrative assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were bought out, she was, she was part of the deal. So she's now the executive assistant here at ScriptDrop. Um, selling the business absolutely, um, de- again, it decreased my stress level and by extension decreased hers. So um, selling it, you know, it, I, it would be a lie to say that it wasn't affecting uh, the marriage and the relationship, but um, yeah, it's, it's tough. And uh, thank God we have a very strong relationship. So it didn't get harmed that much. But when I first went out to this, uh, you know, in this endeavor, I have a few friends here that are CEOs and have run companies 20, 25, 30 years. I took one of them out for lunch and I just asked, I'm like, what am I getting into? Like, please, you know, tell me where the sandbars are before I run aground. And the only thing he told me, he goes, watch your marriage. He's, that's it. He's like, watch your marriage. That will be the first thing that you skimp on. That will be the first thing that breaks. And then what are you working for? Hmm. It was like, that was it. And I was like, thank you. You know, it's, when I worked with this fellow, he had gotten divorced because of entrepreneurship, working, all that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, having advice and, and a network is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Cause you're out there by yourself and you have no one to turn to, no one to talk to. And the people that you do, aren't don't necessarily have that experience. They don't have that background. They're not in it. Mm-hmm. They can hear it, but they don't feel it. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're such big believers um, in, in these sort of mastermind organizations. Have you ever heard of a mastermind where you, it sounds like you did one, you, you had hosted Maybe. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, there's a few big, you know, EO is one of them. And then of course there's tab and Vistage and Renaissance and there's a number of different, in the UK, I think there's one called uh, the Council for Chief Executives. Any of it, there's a lot of them, and, nice. and they play that role that you you kind of created for a lot of your fellow developers. Right. Uh, the other part that was really hard about consulting was that a lot of people, at least in my case, they wanted to hire me, mm. and and that's a great problem. You know, they didn't want to hire my company. They they respected me. They knew my work but now I was selling my word for someone else's work. Hmm. Uh, that's a different thing. So it changes the conversation quite a lot. It's like, well, it's not personal. It's not about you, but so, um, and again, it's a small town. There's a lot of relationships, a lot of, uh, you know, developers move companies pretty, pretty frequently, probably eight months a year on average. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we have a, a smaller scene here. So, you know, a lot of people know each other and, 
have histories together. It, it sounds like your negotiation with Nick was almost a, a kind of dream come true. It's out of, you know, in retrospect, uh, like a really good deal. If you had it to do over again, if you could press rewind on the eight track tape, I'm dating myself. Right. <laughs> um, what, what might you do differently in, in that negotiation? Um, probably not anything in the negotiation, but I, I certainly would have gotten lawyers involved sooner. Um, basically I figured we're two business owners. There's money involved, certainly a handshake. That's good. It's my company. I want to sell it. Well, if you're going through acquisition, there's a whole lot that isn't just a handshake in good faith. There's a lot of paperwork, um, a lot of, uh, landmines that you can step on very badly, especially when it comes to taxation. So let's, yeah, let's reveal some of those. So, so clearly you guys agreed on the price and the rough timing of that payment and right. the currency, it sounds like. Right. What else did you need the lawyer's help to, to sort of structure? The lawyers were literally structuring the acquisition, all the paperwork. Um, basically, what would have happened if I had signed a document right there and then, I, based on the tax that I would have owed immediately, I would have been homeless hmm. that quick. So I didn't Why? sign it. What, what was... The tax debt that I would, I would be on the hook for would basically be more than the value of my house. <laughs> like the way if we did it as a handshake deal. So we had to restructure it as a, like a true acquisition with all the paperwork and everything. I see. So if he just written you a check for X hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, whatever, right. it would have been income for you. And the right. government right. would have wanted a third of that or whatever. Yeah, easily, easily. So, bad. um, yeah. So contacting the lawyer, I mean, I, we always had him, but I was like, well, it sounds like we should get him involved. And, and um, you know, uh, he, he saved me. Uh, and um, also we had a CPA firm uh, mm-hmm. that we worked with very closely. So those two worked together and they saved us a lot of money and, and, you know, over the two months guided us through the process. So right. um, the back and forth really was just a little, you know, it was just kind of small red lines between the two companies. It was nothing really material. Just making sure that we had our, you know, uh, T's <laughs> crossed and I's dotted kind of stuff. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, listen, it sounds like a great, uh, a great marriage and ending. And, and I'm so happy that, uh, that you're uh, liking life at, at script drop and, and that that's going well. If, if people wanted to reach out, I know we're going to have developers wanting to <laughs> work with sure. you, I'm sure. So is it LinkedIn? What's the best way for folks to sort of say hi and, and reach out? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn just uh, under Matt Darby, of course, or my email is uh, Darby D A R B Y at scriptdrop.co.co. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's obviously scriptdrop.co if people want to check out the service itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, feel free to reach out and I'd, I'd love to, I've gotten where I've gotten by helping people. So I'd love to help you and, uh, you know, hit me up. <laughs> well, that's, that's very generous, Matt. Thanks for taking us time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.